Welcome, listeners, to the latest episode of Talking Addiction and Recovery Podcast. As always, I am your host, Andrew J. Schreier. This episode's format is going to be a little different in comparison to past episodes. Last week, my brother sent me an article with the heading, The Drug Became His Friend, Pandemic Drives Hike and Opioid Deaths. Within the same week, I received two other articles in reference to a spike or increase in opioid deaths since COVID-19 hit. This is not unusual for people to like send me articles relating to like addiction and mental health. The clinical director and I at the Medicaid Assisted Treatment Program often send each other different articles, and there are times where we even send each other the same same one. The owner and clinical director of the outpatient practice I work at, we often send each other different things that we've read, research articles, or stuff that comes up in relation to like mental health and addiction, and other things. My father, too, even sends me articles in relation to what he come across and sees. So sharing of this information and what we we read and find out and what we think might be helpful for someone is a pretty common practice for what I do. So the big question is, like, why choose to talk about it now? Well, when I receive three articles related to the same subject from different people, that tells me it's something those individuals recognize that's probably important for me to know or that stood out or even maybe they wanted to know more about it. Therefore, I believe it's like important to read them and to do what I call an article autopsy as I breeze through it, read it, ask questions and think about, well, how does this impact what I do and the people that try and help? And it's all really started when I was young and started working for my father's consulting business. And I was really fortunate enough to learn at a pretty young age the importance of paying attention to trends, innovations, and paradigm shifts. I was introduced to a futurist named Joel Barker. Among many things, what him and my father taught me to do was looking at information and resources and know what to take away and look for to see what could be helpful in developing a landscape, so to speak, of the future. I definitely wouldn't be the counselor and supervisor and mental health mental health professional I am today if it wasn't for a lot of the things that they taught me in regards to thinking about the future, planning for the future, understanding the implications of what happens. So a lot of the work that I have done is thankfully from the work that they've taught me and instilled in me from a young age. So that led me to doing these article autopsies. So as I receive different articles or look up different information, this is what I do with them. This is something that I do a lot with my gambling supervision and my supervisor with that is looking up articles I come across where it talks about gambling, betting and all that kind of stuff, video gaming and print it off. And we look at it, we ask questions. So this is the process that I do with these. I ask, you know, how can this help the people I counsel? How might it impact counselors that I supervise and other mental health professionals I work with? How does this impact family members and peers? How does this impact communities and like schools? What influence does this have when it comes to treatment programs and what is happening in the future of addiction and recovery? Is there anything out of this article that I can pull out that can help the people I am trying to help with their addiction and recovery? That is the entire purpose of doing these article autopsies. So 
how does this help you? Maybe you've seen a, a title similar to this article and have questions about it yourself. Maybe you're in a position similar to what is going on with the individuals whose lives are discussed in the article. Maybe you are in the profession and hearing about what the article is talking about could benefit what you do. So here's what we do. I have looked over the article, you know, I highlighted some specific portions and I'm going to, to read it to you now and also discuss some things. So as I read it, I'm going to stop and talk about different parts about them. There's nothing more. Um, I don't say nothing more, but this is a very valuable tool in understanding kind of what is going on, getting clarification, understanding more, reading a headline and not knowing exactly what's behind it or what's going on. So it can bring clarification. It can bring knowledge. It could bring, you know, just something more that says, you know, I, I get this or I understand this a little bit further. So definite recognition to my brother for sending this to me. And the article again is called the drug became his friend pandemic drives hike in opioid deaths. And the subtitle is in the months since the pandemic took hold in the U S the opioid epidemic has taken a sharp turn for the worse. More than 40 states have seen evidence of increase in overdoses. The story comes out of Vermont. And on the first Friday in June, Jeffrey Cameron, 29, left his home around midnight to buy heroin. He had been struggling with addiction for seven years, but had seemingly turned a corner, holding down a job that he loved at Basil's Pizzeria, driving his teenage sister to the mall to go shopping and sharing a home with his grandmother. But then the coronavirus pandemic hit. When he returned home that night and tried the product, it was so potent that he fell and hit his head in the bathroom. Mr. Cameron texted a friend soon after saying that he had messed up and would go to a 12-step meeting with a friend that weekend. I promise I'm good and I can't get in any more trouble tonight, he wrote. Sweet dreams, if you wake up before you hear from me, definitely call me. The sooner I get up and into town, the better. When Mr. Cameron woke up, he used the rest of the powder, largely fentanyl, not heroin, his family would later learn, from a small bag with a bunny stamped on it. Less than five hours after he sent the text, his grandmother found him dead. And this was something that I just talked about recently in an episode called What's in Your Drugs? With the concerns about what's being in substances, mixing, cutting, lacing... And this is an example of one of those where believing it's heroin and believing probably his tolerance for heroin, what he was using, more than likely believing he was using on a consistent basis, that amount, his tolerance for it was, was okay, not seeing that that would be any risk or concern. But then when you use something like fentanyl and not knowing that, it can impact you significantly. And that's what can lead to overdoses. We see fentanyl playing a large role in the spike in overdoses. So this is a, a clear example, a big reason why I spoke on that issue of what's in your drugs. So let's return back to the article. In the six months since COVID-19 brought the nation to a standstill, the opioid epidemic has taken a sharp turn for the worse. More than 40 states have recorded increases in opioid-related deaths since the pandemic began. In Arkansas, the use of Narcan, an overdose-reversing drug, has tripled. 
Jacksonville, Florida has seen a 40% increase in overdose-related calls. In March alone, New York County and Pennsylvania, uh, York County in Pennsylvania recorded three times more overdoses than the normal. For Mr. Cameron, the shutdown of daily life in the spring not only led him back to drugs, but led him to use alone an especially dangerous position. Usually he would use with somebody, especially if it's a different dealer or different batch, said his mother, Tara Real. I don't think he had that person to use with to have that safety net. This jumps to another previous episode that I did, which was what's wrong with saving someone from an overdose, where I talk about the use of Narcan. And I talk about some of the controversy that people have with Narcan and the debate about having it. And there's others that are trying to get out there more often. I've explained before that I've been trained in Narcan multiple times. I was trained in the old way of the injection that used. And now it's more of a nasal inhaler, which is a lot easier to use. And I discuss some of the issues that are going on with that and why I believe it's important to have for places to carry and we've seen that, uh, hearing about, you know, first responders, police officers, you know, different health professionals having Narcan available. And I've this is why I've been an advocate for, you know, I really think in an ideal situation or setting that I think Narcan nowadays would hopefully be in a standard first aid kit. And part of it is because not for the person who's using to have that, but in case someone finds them or discovers them or is around them and the individual appears to be experiencing overdose, that someone else can use that to save them. So this is an example where the mother talked about how using a loan and usually there might be like a safety net of someone else around there, but this didn't happen in this situation. So going back to the article, Mr. Cameron lived in East Bar, a tiny town about 20 minutes outside of the state capital. He drove a red Subaru Legacy, had a pet snake named Lucy, and was passionate about making food for others. For two days after he died, the pizza shop he worked for closed its doors. Now his picture's plaster the windows and customers can buy car decals t-shirts and bracelets made in his memory uh, considering what that pizza place went through with closing down and the ability to still do that you know, shows a lot uh, definitely care about the individual and what he meant to them what they're still willing to do considering the challenges they face so definite props to them for for still being able to do that when Vermont shut down in March, so did Mr. Cameron's job, which provided his biggest support network. He was lonely and had money to spare. The $600 per week he received and extra unemployment benefits from the federal government was more than he earned from his job. So right there, there's a, a couple of things I highlighted there, which was the, you know, the fact that his job was his biggest support network. And I hear that all the time. This is something that I've heard when I was working in halfway houses, residential, when guys were getting out of incarceration, that the biggest thing to focus on was that getting a job was going to help them with their recovery. If they could just work, if they could just find a job, that they would have a greater chance of success with their maintaining sobriety. And I know why. I mean, it, it provides a lot of structure. There's routine. There's accountability. 
if you're making money, the financial stressors that you might be experiencing, you know, might be lesser to, to pay bills and other things. So I definitely understand why working is important. However, there are also challenges that come with work, you know, because you have money or extra money that could be a trigger. There could be increased work related stress, but there could also be a shift in priorities. You know, it's not uncommon when someone gets a job that some of the things they were doing to maintain their sobriety and build a recovery network stopped happening. So I would, the most common one I would see is people when they weren't working, you know, would go to multiple meetings and all of a sudden they would get a job. And then all of a sudden you would see that those meetings would start to drop off. And one of the reasons that explained why they couldn't go anymore was, well, I'm working so much and I'm tired and I have to work. I can't not work. While I know that it's a shift and now you're adding something to your life and adding a responsibility you need to do. But when work becomes more important and the recovery starts to slide down the priorities, that's going to be really challenging. I always have said that before that recovery is a top priority that if you keep recovery at the top, everything else can manage and find its way. Once you start putting other things above recovery, that is when it's very easy for addiction to creep back in, to take over. And the moment that happens, once the using is happening or starts happening, everything else is a very, very distant second place. So I understand how being out of work now all of a sudden throws a big wrench into his recovery plan. But the biggest thing too is that even though a job can provide structure and routine accountability, you need a bigger support network than work. You need people that you can reach out to. You need coping skills. You need other individuals that have experienced you know, what you've gone through who can be there to help you to understand some of those challenges that you are going through. So even though I don't, I don't doubt that working helped, the issue of it being the biggest support network would be something that I would have focused on is you need more than, than just work. Then the other part of that sentence in that paragraph was extra unemployment benefits, having extra money, extra cash on hand, is a trigger for a lot of people. Having that extra money to spend is, uh, that's not the first time I've heard some people who received the unemployment benefits who have used some of that on their drug use, where it was more than they were earning from their other jobs, but it was also extra money that they were now using. So that's where you need to know how to handle money. You know, what do you do with extra cash? What do you do when you have additional money that came in or that you got paid on Friday? Payday is a big one that we talk about. But that is where coping skills, money management is an important piece in relapse prevention and recovery building. The The next article or the next paragraph starts off with Jeffrey hated being alone. In the last couple of weeks he was, said Miss Real who was 47, his grandmother had gone to Atlanta to visit her other children and had delayed flying home for fear of catching COVID-19. In her absence, Mr. Cameron started keeping the television tuned to her favorite channel, blaring Western movies and Bonanza reruns. He was home alone a lot more. 
Miss Real said, and I think the drug became his friend. So loneliness is definitely a concerning issue. That is a big one that an emotion that can trigger using. It's part of the halt, the hungry, angry, lonely, tired, which are, you know, big relapse prevention warning signs that people who are who are lonely, they struggle with that. They might use and really it using does become your companion, does become your friend. You can deal with being alone more when you have when you are using. So someone who has an addiction, that definitely makes sense. So part of it is because of COVID-19, there has been a lot of disconnection. There has been a lot of the social distancing, in-person things not happening, meetings shutting down, where our interaction with one another has been challenged. And there's been some distance. There's been some extra hurdles and barriers. So it's probably a lot of people who feel that since this has happened, they felt alone or isolated or not as connected. And that's a red flag when it comes to someone with an addiction that that could easily trigger a use or increase the desire to want to use. So there's got to find ways to stay connected, to still talk with people, a support network, still do things with others, even though it might not be the same. You're going to have to adjust and, you know, maybe try new things. But there's a definite understanding that people have been feeling lonely since this happened. You still got to find ways to connect and to have relationships to avoid getting so isolated and lonely that could lead back to wanting to use to deal with it. Returning back to the article, Mr. Cameron had stopped taking Suboxone, a medication that helps suppress the cravings and withdrawal symptoms that plague people addicted to opioids last fall. It has been found to sharply reduce the risk of dying from an overdose, but he had grown tired of taking it after three years, his mother said. And there's another couple paragraphs that I'm going to skip to lead right back into like the medication part which is far more common than inpatient addiction care is treatment with three medications that help suppress the cravings and withdrawal symptoms that plague people addicted to opioids. Vermont has gone further than most states in expanding access to Medicaid-assisted treatment. As it is known, at least 8,960 residents, about 1.5% of the state's population, were taking one of these three medications, buprenorphine, methadone, and naltrexone, during the first quarter of the, this year. So this is where I did an episode on waiting to get help and that there is help out there. And even though there are some places that because of COVID-19, there are some restrictions, there are some newer things that are possibly in place, but a lot of treatment providers have received, you know, resources and guidelines to increase access of care during this pandemic. I remember, and this is just with our clinic in in our state of Wisconsin, you know, we were told not to go on hold, that we had to continue with admission. So there is help out there, you know, do research, make phone calls. There may be some changes due to COVID, but don't assume help is not out there. Don't assume that just because one place might not be open or might not be able to take you that all of them can't like 
continue reaching out, calling places. This is for the individual who might be struggling, but also family members and loved ones. Continue to to reach out if a place has a wait list. You know, continue to call back and find out. So a lot of places have made changes and have been given access to continue to reach people, uh, reach people in different ways, and that like be might be through telehealth. But help is still out there. It might not be in the normal traditional format that you might have expected, but it is out there. In fact, the article goes on to say once the pandemic began, the federal government tried to make it easier for patients to stay on these medications while doctors' offices and clinics were generally closed and people were being asked to stay home. Uh, Nick Rowley, 37, had been taking a daily dose of Suboxone, which is the brand name for buprenorphine, for about eight years. Mr. Rowley was getting back on his feet after being hospitalized for pneumonia when the pandemic hit. With nowhere else to go, he found housing in a hotel through a state-funded program to keep residents off the streets. The extra supply of medication helped him avoid drugs, but in his hotel room, he relapsed on alcohol. I had a few beers at the hotel because you're stuck in a room all by yourself he said you have nothing to do so all you do is sit there and ruminate and your depression gets worse this was i think i brought this up before but i might not have where in a previous episode where i talked about the one of the concerns going on too was like there was a rise in alcohol use going on even before the pandemic hit but when the pandemic hit there were a bunch of articles about Alcohol sales going up and people consuming at home was going up more. Some people weren't working as much and they were drinking more often than they they were. And this isn't about like, you know, if you drink, you're an alcoholic or if you're drinking, like it's just a bad thing in general. But while facing the challenges that COVID-19 has brought and the impact it has had on pretty much all aspects on our lives, Using alcohol, if you have an addiction history, increasing the use of alcohol to cope with it and deal with it, I'm going to be straightforward with you, is probably not the smartest decision. More alcohol will probably not help with the difficulties and challenges you are dealing with. If you're struggling to pay finances and pay bills, spending more on booze probably isn't helping. If you are struggling to stay off of other drugs, and in this case, you know, Mr. Raleigh trying to stay off and being in a hotel, um, he he was using his medication, but with these circumstances going on, it's probably best not to use alcohol. So this is one of the reasons why when my clinical director always talks about this, when someone is using alcohol or alcohol is brought up and the individual will say, well, alcohol is not a problem for me. And, you know, my, my boss always says that, you know, we hear this and he'll, he'll always say, you know, alcohol is not a problem until it becomes one. And sure enough, like alcohol might not have been a problem for this guy for a while. Who knows? But in this situation, him being in this hotel room during after being released from a hospital, nowhere else to go. um, He relapsed on alcohol. 
and then all of a sudden you're in your room by yourself you got nothing to do so all you do is sit there and ruminate and your depression got worse so do we think the alcohol helped him absolutely not are we saying that's the cause to all his problems no but in that situation consuming alcohol was probably not the smartest choice for him to do and he even recognized that which led him down to ruminating and that ruminating led to depression depression got worse so it's important that while you're dealing with the stuff with covid and coping with some of the challenges that if we go back to our old ways which is using substances or if we are trying to avoid or escape or at worst we're trying to do things that's going to make it worse the experience that we're going to have of trying to get through this is going to be more challenging and difficult so not only do i have a problem where i'm using again but now i'm drinking and now i'm spending more money on alcohol and drugs when and like in this case when he's in a hotel because he doesn't have a place to go and doesn't know what to do to keep him off the streets. The other part of the article got into an unfortunate part of, you know, family members who have dealt with, fatal overdoses of, of putting off funerals and memorial services. And it ends with, you know, the real family decide to wait over a month after Mr. Cameron died to hold a service on a bright and humid afternoon in July. More than 80 friends and family members came together at St. Sylvester's Catholic Cemetery and bar to mourn him. Our hearts break, our heads shake at the injustice of yet another young life extinguished by the disease of addiction pastor rachel Froman said after beginning her service with a strong warning for mourners to stay as distant from another as possible i don't want to do a bunch of funerals on the heels of this one tara real and her four surviving children sat in white folding chairs with masks tissues and water bottles handy two of mr cameron's brothers had flown in from out of state taking leave from their posts in the marine corps and navy Six family members spoke, including Mr. Cameron's stepfather, Terry Real. Let Jeff's purpose empower you to make a difference in yours or someone else's life, he said. To do good things in this world or just let someone you know, know you care about them. And as I mentioned earlier in this podcast that there's a number of people that I knew who passed away of an overdose when shortly after COVID hit the amount that I initially knew was about four who I found out about of people that I knew or people that I, I knew of who passed away from, you know, overdoses. And I know that for a lot of us dealing with issues that are happening, things that are going on, like there's nothing more than I would like to do than to, have COVID-19 all of its implications and impact to, to disappear. And since the start of it, I've been paying attention to the impact on substance use and mental health. So I've especially, I've specifically done episodes like waiting to get help and the importance of scheduling 
to provide helpful information and resources to focus on issues related to the impact of COVID-19 and addiction. Some people have mentioned, you know, the rise and increases in these overdoses as a reason to kind of go back to normal. And I have to be honest, like going back to normal is going to be extremely difficult and I believe more challenging than going forward. Since I cannot take away COVID-19, the best thing that I can do is exactly that, is to help people move forward and try and get through this. And doing these article autopsies is a small tool that is used to sort of help do that. And what you got to experience is kind of like a mini breakdown of what I do when I see these articles or receive these articles and what I do to then try and help the people I work with, help the people that are helping others and try and help family members and loved ones who are concerned about it. Because there's no doubt about the fact that COVID-19 and the pandemic is having an effect on substance use. My goal is to try and figure out what that impact is, but how can we address those and deal with those things? There are three specific points I want to really emphasize to conclude this episode with. Number one, there is help out there. Find it, research it, call them. Call them repeatedly if you need to. Help might also come in different forms or ways in which you would prefer or, or that you were used to. So for example, going to a support meeting in person might not be available. Going to counseling in person might not be available. They might they are now available maybe through telehealth or through phone. If your options are to not attend any meeting or counseling or attend one online or by phone, I strongly suggest and encourage you that attending one online or through telehealth is better than not attending one at all. Number two, there are ways to cope with what's going on. For all the challenges the individuals in this article faced, there are ways to cope with them and to overcome. For example, boredom boredom and loneliness are very difficult and are high risk factors for relapse and continued use. However, there are ways to deal with boredom and loneliness that don't have to result in using. Do not lose hope that the challenges we face cannot be overcome. They can. There are people still making their recovery work and they're maintaining their sobriety despite all the challenges going on with COVID-19. But there has to be a belief that you can overcome them and there are ways to do that. Number three, while COVID-19 continues to bring us heavy and ever-changing challenges, I do believe recovery from addiction is possible. I have been working with people who are doing it. I've been reading things about people who are doing it and who are encouraging a lot of people. We just got through recognizing September as Recovery Month. There are a lot of people who are getting help, who are still doing the hard work they need to to get sober and maintain abstinence and build that lifestyle of recovery. Even though I call these article, like the title of these is Article Autopsies, one of the greatest assets they do is provide opportunities, information to help others out there. 
Thank you for listening to this episode that had like a little different format than usual. And as always, I hope you learned something.